Sony. Hello, Canada. Tony here. It's Halloween. Today's date is October 31st, 2020. And I hope that wherever you are in the country, you're able to enjoy Halloween. This will be the part of the podcast that's not scary, breaking the theme of Halloween. I really hope that wherever you are in Canada or in the United States or in the world, you are able to enjoy Halloween today. I know in different regions across Canada, there are some different guidelines or outright rules governing Halloween festivities for this year. In my particular area of Canada, and this is hilarious, they're recommending that kids can still go out for Halloween. By all means, go get go trick-or-treating because it's a tradition here in Saskatchewan and across Canada and across the world. However, they've told us as people who hand out candy that we'll make certain that you use store-bought candy only and that we should hand out this candy using tongs. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, right. And of course, they want kids to stay six feet apart. So what, we're going to have lineups at everybody's houses and... uh, have a bouncer there to check, make sure they stay there six feet apart as they eat, they approach the step one by one. Give me a break. And as yet one more way for our politicians and medical health officers to prove that they clearly don't understand children at all are recommending that when that candy gets home, parents should sanitize all of the candy wrappers and it wouldn't be a bad idea to let that candy sit 24 to 72 hours before the kids have any. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure that was written with a straight face by whoever wrote it, too. Yeah, because kids are just going to stare at that candy and count off the hours until they've they've done their, their proper quarantine time in the candy to make certain that, that nothing's wrong with the wrappers that are protecting the candy inside those plastic wrappers that you would think nothing would get through. But, oh, yeah, yeah, our our kids are diligently going to be sitting there watching, not eating any of their Halloween candy. I don't know what planet our politicians come from, but here's the part of the podcast where it's going to get even scarier when I start talking about what some of our politicians are up to. And let's just get right into it. Those of you who are regular listeners to our show will remember roughly a year ago, maybe not even that long, Lewis made a prediction on our show that Canada will not even exist as a country as we know it in five years from now. And I'm now going to start making that case. I am actually starting to fall in line with that opinion of his and I'll give you a couple of examples of why and then I'll then I'll make my case and this should scare all Canadians left of center right of center along the center even those who don't give a big piling steaming pile of you know what about politics this should scare everybody So I'm going to start with Canada's Deputy Prime Minister. That would be Krista Freeland, who is also Canada's Finance Minister. Now, bear in mind, she takes her marching orders directly from 
Justin Trudeau, and of course is singing from the exact same song sheet. He is actually a figure I'm going to leave out of this rant today because we rant about him all the time, and he is an absolute disaster for this country. Nobody doubts that. Miss Freeland is falling right in line with her predecessor, Bill Morneau, the, yeah, the, you know, the austerity guy. <laughs> right. Um, and she says that Canada is going to continue to spend, 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 and spend some more, and spend. Now, let's take you know, the definition of that. That means borrow more money and borrow more money and borrow more and borrow more and borrow more. We're going to keep developing programs and keep spending. And she's actually openly admitting she's going to keep spending, keep the taps open, because low interest rates mean that we have more borrowing power. And yes, she's aware of of what happened in the 90s when Canada spent itself into oblivion and the World Bank cut us off. But that doesn't mean anything to Christopher Freeland because she says with interest rates low as they are, we can spend, 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 and keep on spending. Now, one problem with that is that Canada has already received a credit downgrade um, from Finch. And it, we have gone down for, from a AAA to a AA credit downgrade. Problem number one. Problem number two, absolutely interest rates are low right now. However, when you're borrowing money at 1%, for example, and the interest rate even creeps up to 1.5%, it sounds like, well, that's not that a big jump in interest rates. However, for the amount of money you've borrowed, you darn right it is, because if I've borrowed $100 at 1%, the interest on that $100 has now gone up one and a half times. So if I've borrowed a hundred billion dollars, for example, and that is not even close to what this this government has borrowed. Let's say the interest on a hundred billion dollars, which is one billion dollars, suddenly with a half percent increase is now one point five billion dollars. That seems a little more substantial. So yes, interest rates are low, but that also means even the slightest uptick in interest rates exponentially affects the amount of interest that we have to pay on all that money that we borrowed. But even though Ms. Freeland may have written for a financial journal, she clearly has absolutely no financial sense whatsoever, nor does anybody else in her government for that matter. So spend, 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 and spend some more. And and this is the one that bothered me when they announced, and I mentioned this in our last episode we did a couple of days ago, that the government has announced that they will not present a budget until, quote, the pandemic is over. Well, who the hell determines when a pandemic is over? But I mean, by what metric do you even measure that the pandemic is over, for one thing? And for another thing, we have gone a year and a half without a budget in this country. As a matter of fact, I believe we, if we haven't already beat, we are approaching the record amount of time for a government in Canada to go without presenting a budget. And this government is in no hurry to, to present a budget to Canadians. 
And let me give you my speculation as to why not. And I'm certain that a lot of you right-minded Canadians, and I don't mean right-wing, I mean just correct in the head, Canadians are probably already get this, is that this government does not want to present a budget to Canadians before an election because they do not want Canadians to see what the numbers are really like and how bad the numbers really are. What this Liberal government wants to do is push an election, get elected to a majority government, at that point present a budget and say, oh, this is what you voted for, Canada. You want us to spend, spend, spend. Even though we're already broke, we're going to spend, spend, spend some more. And that is the biggest reason, in my opinion, that this government does not want to present a budget because they don't want any of us to know exactly how bad the situation is. However, thanks to people like Pierre Polyev and shows like ours pointing out to you that, for example, Canada has the highest per capita debt in the G7, the highest unemployment per capita in the G7, and the situation just continues to get more grim because we keep on spending. So Canada... I almost want to be like Jagmeet Singh and say, no, we can't let the government have an election, at least not until we get a budget. But let's move on, because Christopher Freeland is scary enough. And if this hasn't already scared you, or at least made you just a little bit angry, let's talk about Theresa Tam, Canada's chief medical health officer. Now, she just makes me angry. She doesn't scare me so much as just makes me angry. But at any rate, Dr. Tam released her annual report uh, only a couple of days ago, and a hat tip to Anthony Fury for the article that I read from this one. The annual report from Dr. Tam is subtitled An Equity Approach to COVID-19, which already sounds kind of goofy, but allow me to go on. So there are sections in the equity approach to COVID-19. I don't even know what that means, honestly. However, it will come much more clear to you if you read through it, even if you just read Anthony Fury's article. There are sections in this report on ableism, ageism, and of course, race, meaning the melanin component of one's skin. I'm not sure what any of these have to do directly with COVID-19, but Dr. Tam feels they're very important factors in the disease. And then she has a section where she goes on about the health inequities of COVID-19, that they shape the ways that money, power, and resources are distributed in society. Okay, wait a minute. I'm going to read that again. Health inequities that shape the way that, that money, power, and resources are distributed in society. So is she suggesting that perhaps there needs to be a redistribution of money, power, and resources in society? Well, allow me to go on. Her solution, we need to create, quote, new ways of living and working. Hmm, well, perhaps that would redistribute that wealth in and power, money, and resources. And they would be redistributed on such wonderful things as stable housing. That sounds great. Environmental stability, because we've never had that in the lifetime of the planet Earth. But wow, that would be great. And a complete overhaul of the agricultural sector. What, we don't want to grow food anymore? 
And again, I have to say, what does wealth redistribution, resource redistribution have to do with an approach to COVID-19? You think that a virus made in China, or at least it came from China, has any kind of political views whatsoever? You think that, I mean, the virus is smart enough, of course, that it attacks people at Trump rallies, but not people at BLM protests. That smart virus that that cares about the social conscience of a nation, that it's going to make certain that as long as we redistribute wealth and resources evenly and equally and equitably, that it will leave us alone? I don't get it. But what I do get, and this is what should scare all of you, Canada, no matter what side of the political spectrum you are on, this should scare the hell out of all of you. And that is that the leftists are very emboldened by this. The leftists absolutely love this this COVID pandemic. And it shows because they're not even hiding their agendas anymore. There was once a day when the socialists and communists who wanted to take over were at least somewhat discreet about how they were trying to engineer society and how they were hoping one day to take over. Now, they're not hiding it anymore. They're completely open about what their agenda is, and they don't care if you know because I guess they figure you're complacent enough to go for it. They absolutely want to take over society. They absolutely want to change society. You heard Obama in 2008 fundamentally transform America. Well, you heard Justin Trudeau in 2015 say that Canada, you won't recognize Canada when I'm finished with it. And they're not hiding their agenda anymore. They're not hiding the fact that they want to spend us into oblivion. They're not hiding the fact they want all of us to be subjects of the government. They're not hiding the fact that we need equity and everyone needs to be equal, which is an impossible goal to achieve, but we'll get into that another day. But the left is no longer hiding their socialist agenda. You can see that in the American election with Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. They're not hiding anything anymore. They are all about bankrupting our countries. They are all about making us subjects to the government. And they are all about lining us all up so we can all be equal. And what does that mean? Ask Venezuela. That means we can all suffer equally. Now, I referenced earlier that Lewis had said that Canada won't exist in five years. This is the biggest reason why. And why do I say that? Because there are enough common sense pragmatists in areas like southern Ontario, rural southern Ontario, rural Quebec, northern Ontario, the prairies, British Columbia, outside of the lower mainland and southern parts of Vancouver Island. That's a big swath of this country of people that are a little more common sense oriented and won't put up with this crap. And then there are people in urban centers and even urban centers in Western Canada and and elsewhere in Canada that will be okay with everybody suffering equally or so they, so they believe. I mean, they, uh, because they're the close, closer to the universities and centers of power where I think they've just, they've removed themselves from the real world because in those little bubbles, they've got a very different kind of lifestyle and it's very quickly going to become 
the two diverging paths of the pragmatists I discussed earlier, and I don't even know how to label the folks in the the urban areas, the the southern Ontario's, the the Montreal and the St. Lawrence corridor, the Laurentian Triangle. I I can't call them elites because they're not necessarily all elitist, but they are without a doubt out of touch with how real Canadians are. And it's going to be the diverging path of these real pragmatic, common sense, practical Canadians and those who live in their bubbles. And that wedge is actually going to be what tears Canada apart because there's going to come a point where finally the common sense people say, okay, I can't play this game with you anymore. I can't keep trying to keep our valuable resources in the ground when the world is crying for them. We're not going to completely transform and recreate how our agricultural system is because we feed the world with that agriculture. And I think it's eventually going to come down to a point where the two paths just say, you know what, we can't coexist anymore. And you're going to see two Canada's or possibly more. And I wonder if it's even going to take five years. Tony.